Cindy Martinez, and welcome to the neighborhood. he's not serious but you know how many idiots are gonna write his name in you know it's like the same amount of idiots that wrote in Harambe at the last election <laughs> so stupid um whatever <laughs> so uh, we're back so I know we we missed an episode a couple weeks ago and I'm really sorry about that um we were having some technical difficulties and um George came over and I think he fixed it well it sounds good it sounds like way better so I'm gonna go with he fixed it <laughs> and um um so that's why we missed the last episode or two episodes ago um so I haven't recorded in a while it's been a couple weeks um so much has happened like I'm probably not gonna get to it all to be honest, I mean, you guys all have the internet. Um, you guys, I'm hoping you guys check the news as often as I do. Um, because <laughs> fuck, like, the, it has been crazy. Like, I feel like June has been the worst month, probably. So, before I get serious with my tone, I do want to talk about something that's something positive that's happened, and that's the Golden State Killer. Um, well, I said positive, like, it was a it is, though. Um, so his hearing was on June 29th, and he pleaded guilty to all charges. He admitted to all, um, acts of violence and rape and, um, everything. And I was so, I don't know what, it, like, took my breath away. The very first time I heard him say guilty. The very first guilty. Um, I don't know. It took my breath away. It was like, oh my god, he, we got him. Ah! And then on top of that, like, my emotions have had been high because HBO also recently put out their I'll Be Gone in the Dark series um, about the case and also about Michelle McNamara's investigation of it. Um, I've really been enjoying it. We're only on the second episode, but I've really been enjoying it. I, I just love that she's getting all of this credit and praise that she deserves, like, um, and even though it's posthumously, it's, which is sad, um, she deserves all the credit. Um, so, yeah, we're kind of revisiting that. It's, it kind of, it's, like, bittersweet. It's, like, when we, when they first arrested him, you know, like, everyone who had been following the case, their minds just went back to her, you know, and, um, it, it's bittersweet. But I am, like, so, ex I'm so happy. I'm so happy that he's fucking gonna die in prison, you know, that frail little fuck. And also, like, <laughs> when I were describing how small his penis was, and 
that was such an awesome moment because you can see the you can see that she's like as she's reading the description that he has a small penis she's smiling and trying not to laugh and then um then you hear when the when it she's done you hear the crowd just like cheering and clapping their hands and, and like I guess later later on they released a photo of one of the survivors who was in the crowd. She was at the hearing and when she said small penis, this lady stood up and stared right at him. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. I stand. I totally stand. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Vanessa Guillen. So this is another situation that's come up recently that angered me to my core and like my blood is boiling for a lot of different reasons. Of course, the story of Vanessa Guillen is not new, as in she's not the first victim. Um, so Vanessa back in April, first of all, she's in the army. She was in the army. She was based in Fort Hood. She's 20 years old. She's from Houston, Texas. She's Latina, like me. So, she told her mom back in, like, March, April, I'm not 100% sure on the time situation, but she told her mom that she was being sexually harassed on the base. Her mother told her to report it, and then Vanessa went missing in mid-April. A soldier went missing from Fort Hood. That's not fucking normal, first of all. When a soldier goes quote-unquote missing, the military is supposed to search high and low because it could be, it could be a number of things. But usually, usually, their first instinct or thought or assumption is fucking AWOL. So tell me why, instead of starting an investigation and a search, they cleared out her fucking bunker like she was never there and then just kept on moving. What the fuck? And then her family, you know, has had been pushing and yelling and, and just like, going off and trying to get the army to fucking do something. And I don't even know how it happened that it finally went viral on social media. And in the wake of everything going on, of course, it gained momentum. And finally, they started a search party. The search party didn't even last two fucking weeks before they found her body 20 miles away from the base. So... A lot has happened um, since they found her remains. Um, first of all, the, the suspect, the guy who had been harassing her, allegedly, which, I mean, we all know it's, it's fucking true. I mean, I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. But, um, allegedly, he killed himself. No, no, do you really believe that? Because then the, her best friend who initiated the search, who was also on the base, who was also experiencing sexual harassment, um, she also died in a fucking mysterious car accident. 
So I, I, I don't buy it because this is not the first time. First of all, um, sexual abuse against women in the military is very common. This happens a lot. It's not the first time. And then cases like Vanessa Gaines have happened before. So yeah, finally people are rising up and, um, you know, amplifying these cases, these stories. And so many ex-military women are coming forward and saying, yes, um, it's very probable that she experienced sexual harassment because it happened to me. So like, it's so common. But the thing is that like, the military, they just fucking cover it up or sweep it under the rug or make them go away. That's, that cannot be coincidental. That's like, it's like Jeff Epstein level of cover up. It's so fucked up. So that was just a brief summary of it. Um, I know that Jensen and Hole's murder squad covered it for two episodes. So if you want um, the full story and um, updates and details and stuff, go check that out. It was really good. Also, it like enraged me to my core because of Again, they talked about the issues of sexual abuse of um, female soldiers. So, if you want to get really fucking mad, go listen to that. Um, let's bring it back to Mississippi. So, so the last episode I did was Emmett Till. And um, that was a really tough one to do. A lot of tears were shed during the research of that. Um, but literally a couple of days after I recorded it, the state of Mississippi did something that I did not expect. Um, they voted to change the state flag. Now, I heard that they were going to vote on it, but I didn't think it was going to get enough votes. Now, those of you that don't know, the Mississippi flag has the Confederate, um, situation going on there. It's like one of the older flags, from way back when, like, because there were, there were many different versions of the Confederate flag, um, and the Mississippi flag was one of them. So, I didn't think it was going to happen. I mean, there was, I mean, obviously idiots standing on street corners waving that fucking flag in protest of the vote, but whatever they voted, and it got the votes it needed. They are going to change the flag. And I was like, okay, Mississippi, all right. So I was, I was really happy about it. Um, I don't know what the new design's gonna be. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what it is. Um, so we're still in Mississippi. I had trouble with this paranormal case just because I was really, really hoping to get something close to, um, close to where the last episode was. But it was really hard, and I, I mean, I really enjoyed researching this one, um, so let's get into it. This was a brand new story for me. I hadn't planned ahead on a paranormal Mississippi story, but dang, you guys have hella ghost stories! Um, from what I've researched, Mississippi has a lot of blood in its roots. I mean, of course the whole country does, but the South is its own category. I mean, we've got the genocide of natives, the French and Spanish occupations, slavery, the Civil War, Jim Crow. I mean, that is some insane history. 
It would seem like Vicksburg is the center of all that. It is considered one of the most haunted towns in the country and holds the most haunted house in Mississippi, the McRaven Mansion. Named after its former street name, the house is located at 1445 Harrison Street. This mansion is said to be the oldest standing structure in Warren County, Mississippi, is listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and is referred to as the Time Capsule of the South. What makes the McRaven so unique is that the home was built throughout three different periods of time, and the styles are reflective of those eras. This house dates all the way back to the days of George Washington. It is so deeply rooted in United States history, it was once used as a hospital and camping site for Confederate soldiers in the Civil War during a 47-day battle against the Union to whom they surrendered. This house has seen much death and has had several names and many generations of owners of different socioeconomic classes, all of them with fascinating life stories, and their spirits love to make their presence known. The sources I used for this story are mcraventourhome.com, vicksburgpost.com, SethParker.net, CloudedInMystery.com, OnlyInYourState.com, WJTV.com, GhostStory.co.uk, the YouTube channel Society of the Supernatural, Ghost Adventures Hauntings of Vicksburg, the McRaven Mansion episode, and of course Wikipedia. It is the year 1797, and the town now known as Vicksburg is called Fort Nogales and is under Spanish rule. The legend goes that a highwayman named Andrew Glass is part of the infamous mural gang, who were known to rob pioneers on the Natchez Trace, which was French territory at the time. After acquiring some land, Glass built himself a small cottage as a hideout. This part of the house is now called the Pioneer Section. The house was only two rooms, a kitchen on the ground floor and a bedroom on the top floor. However, there were no stairs put in and the only way to get up to the bedroom is via a ladder into the window that Glass never laughed out and would pull up into the room once he got to the top, as he was certain someone would kill or capture him while asleep. One night, Glass was on the run from French soldiers he had encountered on the Natchez Trace. It is said that he was shot or injured, but he managed to make it home in time, and that he refused to be captured and hung. Instead, he asked his wife to quote, finish him off, to which she obliged and slit his throat. He would be the first death on the property. 
Now the reason I call this a legend is that while this is the official story told about the origins of the McRaven house, there's conflicting information, such as the house was also considered a place for pioneers to lodge and rest on their way west. Also, during these times, there was an Anthony Glass and an Andrew Glass. They were brothers, landowners, carpenters, and considered to be very wealthy and well-respected members of the community who had powerful influence over the county. Allegedly, Andrew Glass was so wealthy that he was one of the town's first citizens to pay a luxury tax. This was, of course, after the treaty with Spain and they left the area to the Americans. The National Register of Historic Places report from 1978 regarded Andrew Glass as an early settler, and some say he was actually a sheriff. Considering how long ago this was, it is probable that a lot of the information got mixed up or lost and there's no actual proof of Andrew Glass being a highwayman or part of Mural's gang. It still could be true though, I mean, a greedy, corrupt sheriff who steals from travelers? That is not a faraway thought. Other conflicting information I have found is that his wife murdered him out of jealousy, perhaps because of his infidelity, as he was also considered a womanizer. I couldn't track down an exact date of his death, except that it may have been sometime between 1800 and 1806. The next owner of the house was Sheriff Stephen Howard. He bought the property in 1836 for him and his pregnant wife, Mary Elizabeth. It is alleged that Mary Elizabeth was between 12 and 15 years old, which, gross. Howard made additions to the house in a different architectural style known as Empire, which was known at the time for its simplicity. He added a second bedroom with a balcony on the upper level, a set of stairs, a dining room downstairs, and two side balconies. This portion of the house is known as the Empire section. It was in that new bedroom that Mary Elizabeth birthed their daughter Karen in August 1836. However, Mary Elizabeth died just two weeks later due to complications. Not much is known about what happened to Howard and his daughter afterwards, but I believe they stayed in the house for some time before relocating elsewhere. Sheriff Howard is omitted from the 1978 report for the National Register of Historic Places, even though he and Mary Elizabeth were real people, and there's proof that they lived in the house. Again, this is another case of information getting lost and mixed up. I came across this guy, Seth Parker, who went into much deeper research than I could. I never claimed to be perfect. But his theory is that Andrew Glass was a wealthy landowner in Vicksburg and that he allowed Sheriff Howard to live in the house. It is alleged that Howard was involved in the mural excitement where John Mural, quote, plotted to incite a slave rebellion, which if that's true, then good on him. 
but this turned out to be a catastrophe as there was a rumor about the local gamblers being involved in the plot too and an angry racist mob confronted them and it turned into a quarrel in which they hung five of the gamblers. So this guy Seth believes that the only highwayman in this history is John Mural, and that Anthony Glass became Andrew Glass who was given Mural's traits and now we have the legends of Andrew Glass the Highwayman and Sheriff Stephen Howard. Do what you want with that info, I don't know, again it's just a theory. Um, from the paranormal evidence it's not looking to be that way, but I'll let you decide. Also, quick note, I couldn't find many details, but during the 1830s the house was used as a stop on the Trail of Tears. Now, in case y'all didn't listen during fourth grade history, the Trail of Tears was the forced relocation of many indigenous tribes, i.e. the Cherokee and the Chickasaw, where countless died on the way. Just a sliver, a taste of the oppression and genocide towards the people whose land was stolen from them. The next owner of the house was John H. Bob a wealthy slave owner and brick manufacturer from Philadelphia. He and his wife Selena moved in in 1849. Bob built the last portion of the house in a Greek Revival style. He added a front entry area, an elegant parlor, a master bedroom, a dressing room which he called a gentleman's dressing room, and a flying staircase. During this time it was known as the Bob House. John Bob's story is the most prominent of all the previous owners of the home because during his time there came a huge event in American history and you probably know where I'm going with this, it's the Civil War. Now being a wealthy slave owner in the South, good old John Bob was an immense supporter of the Confederacy. Huge shocker there. Now here's the thing about Vicksburg. This was one of the most vital towns for the Confederacy, as it is right along the Mississippi River, which they controlled and used to ship supplies, and was directly across from Louisiana. Late in the war, Vicksburg ended up being their last stronghold along the river, and the Union sought to capture it to geographically fuck the Confederacy. And they did. The Siege of Vicksburg began on May 18, 1863, under the command of Ulysses S. Grant. The battle lasted 47 bloody days in which the Union obliterated the Confederacy, taking heavy hits and over 1,600 casualties until Lieutenant General John C. Pemberton surrendered on July 4, 1863. Oh, the irony. The Union then began their occupation of Vicksburg, and days later the command of the Mississippi River was also surrendered to them. The mansion served with a fundamental purpose for the battle. Bob volunteered his house to the Confederacy and was used as a camping site and hospital. Since the house was very close to the railroad, this area was also a major point in the battle, which resulted in the property taking heavy hits from cannons and bullets. To this day, there are still bullets occasionally found on the property. 
and it is said that the parlor alone took 147 cannons. The hospital, of course it being the late 1800s, was not hygienic at all, and many soldiers died from disease. Many amputations were also done. It is said that there are between 11 and 25 soldiers buried on the property in a mass grave, but there was also another mass grave found with just leg and arm bones. After the battle, John moved back into the house and began the repairs. On May 18, 1864, Bob noticed a group of six Union soldiers picking flowers from his garden. Keep in mind, the gardens are about three acres, so I don't know exactly where they were and whether they knew or cared that they were on someone's property. The city was under siege, so probably not. John Bob demanded the soldiers get off his property, to which the soldiers cursed at him. Bob then threw a brick, hitting a sergeant and knocking him to the ground. As they were leaving, the men threatened Bob and said they'd burn the house down. Fearing for his life, Bob left to report it to the federal commander of Vicksburg, General Henry W. Slocum, who was dismissive but said he'd take care of it. But when he returned home, Bob was met at the gates by 25 Union soldiers. They grabbed him and took him to Stout's Bayou, only 300 feet from his house and shot him in the back and in the cheek. John H. Bob was buried in Cedar Hill Cemetery. His widow, Selena, sold the house to a realtor in 1869. The next owners were the Murray family. William Murray was a local machinist and inventor. It is alleged that he was a union veteran from Illinois who married Mississippi local Ellen Flynn. They moved into the mansion in 1882. The Murrays were the only family in the McRaven home's history that raised children there. Together, they had four daughters and three sons. The names of most of the children are unknown, except for Ida, Annie, and Ella. In 1911, William died in the home, and his wife Ellen followed in 1921. Their daughter Ida died in 1946, and one of the sons in 1950. After 1950, the only people that occupied the house were sisters Annie and Ella. They were both unmarried and lived a quiet life, mostly secluded from society. Out of all the previous owners, I am most fascinated by these women. They remind me of Edith and Edie Bouvier. If you haven't seen Grey Gardens, I highly recommend it. The two women lived with no contact with the outside world except their doctor, and although they had a telephone, they did not have electricity, indoor plumbing, or running water. They were also compulsive shoppers and hoarders, constantly ordering from catalogs via the telephone. They bought so many items and the house became so cluttered that they were eventually confined to living in the dining room. To keep warm, they used furniture as firewood. They also used the original kitchen, which is only accessible through outdoor entry, and used the original bathroom, which was detached from the house and in the backyard. Their lifestyle was very much like the 1800s and the reason why is unknown. 
1960, Ella died at the age of 81, and Annie sold the house and moved into a nursing home. The house was in total disrepair. The upper floor was completely overgrown with vines, and people nearby had no idea it existed. The house was sold to O.E. Bradway in 1960, who did a huge restoration of the house, and he was the first person that opened the home to the public for historic tours in 1961. During the renovations, Bradway discovered hundreds of shell casings and mini balls within the floorboards, the walls, and on the roof, as well as on the grounds. There were also many cannonballs discovered underneath the floorboards and the bathtubs. Also, it was discovered that the rooms hadn't changed much, dating all the way back to Andrew Glass, and many furniture and personal possessions belonging to all the previous owners were still on the property. In 1979, Bradway sold the property to Charles and Sandra Harvey. Sandra delved deep into research for the restorations, wanting each section of the home to represent its era and architectural style of the times in which it was built. I do want to point out that neither the Bradways nor the Harveys lived in the home as it was strictly kept up for the historical tours. In 1984, the Harveys sold the McRaven to Leland French. While he still ran the tours, Leland was the first owner to live in the house since the Murrays. Leland did further restorations, and apart from a modern kitchen and bathroom, the house has remained the same since the 19th century. It is said that Leland French was fascinated by the house's history and the paranormal activity in the home. He allegedly conducted rituals to try and connect, and it's possible he may have opened doorways or portals that he could not close. It's also plausible that he angered the spirits in the house. Leland experienced a lot in the home, which I will come back to, but many of his experiences he never told anyone. Whatever he went through, it was enough for him to have the house exercised by an Episcopal priest. In 2008, he moved out of the home, closing it for tours as well. The house stood alone and unkept for many years until it was purchased for $1.7 million by Stephen and Kendra Reed, who restored the house and reopened it to the public for both historical and ghost tours. They are the current owners. They allege that the paranormal activity is constant and because of French's experiences, they refuse to live in the house. The McRaven has been visited and investigated by many broadcasts, including local Mississippi news stations, A&E, Ghost Adventures, and 48 Hours. It's also been investigated by many ghost hunters and clairvoyants. It's said that as many as 14 ghosts haunt the property, but chances are, based on all the information I found, that number is way higher. The first recorded spirit activity dates all the way back to the Siege of Vicksburg. After the Confederacy surrendered, 
It is alleged that the house was used temporarily as a command post by the Union, and one Captain McPherson went missing. Several weeks later, his colonel was asleep in a rocking chair when a noise woke him up, but he found nothing in the room, and he went back to sleep. Then he felt someone walking the chair behind him. He stood up abruptly and was faced with McPherson, who was still in his Union uniform, which was torn and wet, and the side of his head was mangled. McPherson explained to him that former Confederates had jumped him and threw his body into the river. He told the colonel not to avenge his death, and then he was gone. There have been many photos of apparitions captured, as well as orbs, EVPs, and spirit box sessions. It seems that there is a variety of both residual and intelligent spirits on the property. The most active room in the house is Mary Elizabeth's room. She's also the most prominent spirit. The bedside lamp turns on and off on its own frequently. She likes to play pranks and typically comes around during tours when people are talking about her in the room. She's regarded as friendly and loving and is very active around children and mothers. Occasionally, she will appear and try to lead people astray from the group. There have been times during tours when the armoire doors would open and close on their own. The bed in the room, which is the original bed that she died in, would sometimes have an impression as if someone is laying on the bed, and then it would flatten back to normal on its own. Her apparition appears frequently on the flying wing staircase, in the dining room, and most often in the window of her own bedroom. She will be seen looking out the window, and when she notices someone walking into the room, she disappears. People describe her as a teenage girl in a long brown dress and her hair in a bun. She's also been known to photobomb guest photos. One of her possessions on display in the house is her wedding shawl. Many people have reported that when holding it, the shawl emits heat, and some have claimed they either feel it jumping or being snatched out of their hands. Sheriff Howard has also been seen in the balcony of Mary Elizabeth's room. He wears light brown pants, a dark brown shirt, and a wide-brimmed hat. There are two child ghosts known as Eric and Peekaboo. I'm not sure who is who, but one of them has red hair and the other boy is African-American. It is believed he may have been a slave of Bob's. They like to mess with employees and guests by peeking through doors or touching them on their backs. There are several toys left for them that they love to play with and are often found in different places than where they were left or they're rearranged. In fact, many of the relics in the downstairs area are constantly found rearranged, scattered, or placed in different spots. A lot of these items were personal belongings of previous owners, and it is believed that they are linked to some of the activity going on. Often, you'll hear the piano playing, even though it's broken. In the dining room, you typically hear two people having a conversation, and it is believed they are the Murray sisters. The two women are often seen together walking the grounds or in the hallways together. Also seen on the grounds are apparitions of indigenous people. 
The Harveys claim that they used to get many phone calls in the middle of the night from neighbors, letting them know that the lights in the house are going on and off. During restorations, many construction workers felt their legs and arms being touched or pulled by an unseen force. Employees have been scratched and have heard someone whispering to them in their ears, as well as guests. Many common occurrences are doors slamming on their own, alarm clocks going off, lights flickering, footsteps, taps, knocks, and shadow figures are often seen as well. William Murray used to walk with a cane, and there has been several times that people hear him walking with it, and it's been caught on EVP. There have been many sightings of Confederate soldiers as well, at either early mornings or at dusk they are seen patrolling the grounds. They have also appeared peeking in through the windows from outside at all hours of the day. Some have reported seeing a Confederate soldier standing behind them in the parlor mirror or sitting on a chair. People have been pushed down the stairs and aggressively pushed out of chairs. Mr. Bob is another prominent spirit in the home. He usually looks angry and is known to be intimidating and territorial over the house. He is often seen strolling the patio or the porch and sometimes even the spot where he was murdered. Employees say you can hear his voice often and smell cigar smoke, which indicates he's around. In the gentleman's changing room, the window taps and rattles on a regular basis and his face is often seen looking into the window. Shadow figures have also been sighted in this room. Bob is also often seen in the room off the foyer in the corner and has appeared during tours. An employee was once taking their break and napped on a sofa in the entryway. When they woke up, Bob was standing over them, looking down in anger. The employee was so shaken that they quit immediately and never returned. The most aggressive spirit is Andrew Glass. Now, during the Ghost Adventures episode, during a shadow box session, a spirit identified itself as Andrew. I mean, the spirit could be lying, or there really was an Andrew Glass who was a highwayman. I don't know. But his room in the house has the most negative activity. Employees hate going in there, and the tour guides hate working that room. Upon entering the room, people experience anxiety attacks, unreasonable anger, they feel heavy, and have difficulty breathing. They also feel strange and unwanted, usually women. People have been pushed or feel a plucking on their shoulders. Women, usually employees, have been groped and had nightmares. There is a chair in the room that tilts back and slams forward on its own. During a tour, a chair suddenly slammed to the ground. One night, during either a ghost tour or investigation, an employee who was in Mary Elizabeth's room was picked up and pushed into the glass room, which is adjacent, and they heard laughter and a disembodied voice say, I have you fooled. Leland French experienced many violent attacks during his time here. Again, this could be because he allegedly tried to contact spirits and he angered them. 
He saw William Murray on the staircase once, and he chased him. French ran up to the master bedroom and locked the door. Another time while working on a small project, he was pushed down so hard and fast that he landed on his face, breaking his glasses and injuring himself, requiring stitches. The last straw for him may or may not have been this. He was opening a dresser, which was quite heavy, and he had his hands on both sides of it when an unseen force slammed the drawer shut breaking both of his thumbs. After that, he called an Episcopal priest to have the house blessed, which allegedly did help with the negative activity, but he was too frightened to stay in the house any longer, and he left soon after. During the ghost adventures investigation, they contacted a spirit that said French's name, and when asked what he used to use to communicate, it said stones. It also implied that his ears were harmed at one point. Also, as they were walking into that room, they heard objects being moved around very loudly. When they walked in, a heavy table had been moved, as well as a lamp, and they found pieces of brick in a neat pile in the middle of the floor. It was the master bedroom, John Bob's room, the brick manufacturer. During the day, they were walking the grounds with metal detectors when they heard what sounded like cannons blasting nearby. They brought in two female employees who'd had frightening experiences on the job during the lockdown, and something happened to the entire group. They all entered some sort of trance, and one of the girls especially experienced violent shaking and heart palpitations. A spirit called her name grabbed her waist and whispered in her ear. Zack began feeling agitated for no reason. Aaron's leg was grabbed. They were all at a standstill in the hallway between Mary's and Andrew's rooms for a long time. They had successful EVP sessions, SLS camera activity, shadow box sessions, and caught many light anomalies as well as unexplained noises. One EVP that stood out to me was in the hallway outside of Andrew Glass's room, a male disembodied voice that said, I come to die, which reminded me of the legend of Andrew Glass's death. Another investigation I watched was by paranormal group Society of the Supernatural on their YouTube channel. I feel like they caught way more activity than Ghost Adventures and were without the dramatics that the show is known for, which was quite refreshing. These guys, they caught a spirit on the SLS camera attempting to hurt one of the investigators for several minutes, as well as caught many Class A EVPs and shadow box responses. They picked up a floral scent in Mary's room and they caught many light anomalies as well. In the parlor room, the piano bench moved on its own, and later, while walking into Glass's room, an investigator got pushed very aggressively and he hurt his knee. They too felt sensations of anger in that room. Also on the SLS camera, they caught child-sized figures, as well as a black mass in the master bedroom. I probably shouldn't have watched their video at 3 in the morning, 
but hindsight is 2020. I lived. For over 200 years, the McRaven Mansion has stood in the historical city of Vicksburg and has seen its fair share of blood, sweat, and tears. While its early history is conflicting, there is no doubt that these people were real, they lived on the property, and in death, they are still present. While it has been the subject of many acts of vandalism in the past, the community of Vicksburg is very supportive of the house's upkeep and the tourism it attracts, and they pride in the fact that it's considered one of the most haunted places in the U.S. Despite the reports of an aggressive spirit, current co-owner Kendra Reed was quoted as saying, It's haunted, but nothing demonic, nothing evil. It's just playful and wants you to know that they're here. That may be the case for some of the activity, but from what I've seen, even the other spirits are afraid of Andrew Glass and John Bob. And Stephen Reed told the Ghost Adventures crew that he was afraid for his employees. So, which is it? Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening, and if it's on Apple, kindly leave us a rate and review as it's a huge help to us and we greatly appreciate it. We post episodes every Friday. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find our Twitter handle at WTTNP, and our Facebook and Instagram can be found with the handle at WTTNPodcast. We'd also love to hear your stories. If you've had a ghostly encounter you'd like to share with us, email us a voice recording at welcometotheneighborhoodpod at gmail.com or send it to us through DM. If you'd prefer to type it instead of recording yourself, that's fine too. Tune in next week for a true crime case in a different city. Also, stay tuned right after this and check out a new single by Chicago local band Narcotics. They recently guested on George's podcast, Two Sushi Rolls, and those guys were hilarious, so be sure to check that out as well. Stay safe out there, and thanks for stopping by.